0: Another extraordinary message on Gil Athletics Connections. Well, welcome to the show. If it goes to appreciate the coach, the ones who point people most, Every season needs a voice of reason, speaking the growth. Got to prep for you, carry the load. It's coffee to the soul. For those of us who stay on the go. Proper handoff to stay in the zone. What you packing for the road. There's more than one way to the go. Take notes, that's paying your toe. It ain't practice if your purpose ain't clear. It can't happen to you listen with both ears. You can't mentor without a mentor. Here's of, of experience. You can reinvent those years. Every plan's got a standard to live up to. And the price sacrifice. Can you give up you? It's a choice and a fight not a win or lose it's not a ploy but vice so y'all can make more moves it's not about how to it's all about why you don't know till you know who you are inside six million ways to tie choose none so we all cross the finish line the work ain't done so we learn from the experts we all got to put in the legwork guild athletics use a network it's all about connections put together for the profession to every track coach could be blessed
1: You're back right here on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. I am so, so happy that you pressed play on today's episode. I'm humbled to be your host, Mike Cunningham, the National Business Development Manager here at Gill Athletics, and you have pressed play on the Connections podcast, where we uplift and honor coaches from around the world. It's really quite fantastic, some of the coaches we've had here on the show in the past. And today is no different. We're going to give you, this is going to be probably, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to predict this, the most eclectic interview that we've had on the show. Our guest today has done, I don't know if it all is the right response, but has certainly done a lot when we talk about the unsung heroes of track and field, meaning people, you know, we obviously know the athletes and they're amazing. And of course, we know the coaches and love them. And that's what our entire show here is to uplift and honor them. Uh, There are other people out there from manufacturers like us, like Gill Athletics, uh, our dealer network that's out there, uh, people who make equipment, sell equipment, coach, master's athletes, all of that and more is what's going to be in today's guest. So let's get to it. Help me welcome from Lane Community College and our great friends and partners at On Track and Field out in California. Help me welcome the wise, the wonderful Mr. Dan West. Dan, how are you, sir? I'm good. Good morning. Thank you. It is morning. That's right. Uh, thanks for for joining us here today, man. I'm I'm super excited. You know, you and I have known each other. I, I probably met you fairly early in my career here, because you know, I, I remember going out to Oregon for Olympic trials, and that's probably actually when I when I first met you. And I've just now known you as Mister Oregon uh, since that day.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's been a it's been quite 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 a run actually with, with uh, my association with Gil.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We we yeah. appreciate it. That's why we wanted to have you on the show. Uh, not only because everything I just described, coaching, uh, manufacturing, dealership, um, master's athlete, that that is one big ball of Dan West. <laughs> you have so many different roles and fun passions that you have, and I'm so excited to be able to explore those today. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Well, you know, Dan, typically, my first question for a coach on the podcast here is somewhere in your life, coaching had to change in your mind, it had to go from something that was done to you, Dan, go throw this, go jump this, etc. to Oh, wait a minute, like I could be the coach, I could actually, that could be a career for me. Uh, Let's, I'm, I'm going to change it up for you here a little bit. Talk to us. Where does track and field start for you?
2: Well, um, when I was, so my, my dad was, my parents were musicians and not military, but they still moved. We moved all over the place. And um, so when I started fifth grade, we moved to Powers, Oregon. And that's a little town, not very far from Coos Bay where famous uh prefontaine came from so track was kind of happening and um it was an exciting because it was uh, a real um backward community uh meaning way away from everything and mm-hmm. we moved into this cool house right above a river to look down and see salmon swimming it was about 50 feet down to the river clear this pool right down below and split level home and exploring. We were out just outside the town. It was really exciting. But at Christmas, it started to rain, snow melted, the river came all the way up to the house. Oh. And big, huge old growth dug fur were bumping into the house from the flood. Oh, wow. So we had to move <laughs> right away. And we went into town and we actually moved into the worst house we'd ever lived in or ever oh. did live in. It's almost a shack. But the cool thing was there was an alley right behind it. And on the other side of the alley was an open lot. And then that lot was a pile of sawdust. Two two by fours with nails in them for standards. And a a a wooden box and a steel vaulting pole. Just laying there. Just laying there. Yeah. Just like yeah. It's just I, and I later I have later found out that Marty Steller built that for the kids. So kids just vaulted. So I just started pole vaulting with the kids.
1: Did you have any idea what vaulting was before? No,
2: no nothing. No, I've never heard of it. Had no concept, but that's what the kids were doing. And so I started vaulting. And at Powers, track started at sixth grade. And I was in the fifth grade. So I kept asking the coach, you know, can I do Can I do track? Can I do this? And he said, not until you're in sixth grade. And I kept bugging him until finally he said, Dan, if you clear six feet, you um, you can you can go to this big, there was a, a county meet in, in Coos Bay. And uh, so I, every night, and then I finally cleared six feet. So he let me go. And I have, you know, it's funny, I have no memory of myself at that meet. But what my memory is, is this big kid, you know, probably an eighth grader, right? <laughs> right. He's a monster guy. And he came running down the runway. And the bar seemed like it was a mile high, 10 or 11 feet, maybe, 12, mm-hmm. maybe. And he had a bamboo pole and it bent a little bit and he swung up and flew over that bar. And that was it. So from that time on, it's, it's been pole vault for me. So track, I've learned to love track and I've coached other events, but for me, it's always been the pole vault, obviously. So I've, I've vaulted since that day, every year I've cleared a crossbar now, 58 years. Wow. In a row. I've cleared a crossbar every year for 58 years. And so that that just started my love affair with the vault and and um unfortunately well fortunately for me i had bad facilities and bad coaches when i had them all the way through college um and i never i never really accomplished in the vault world what i wanted to um but it gave me this drive to make sure that that especially the not knowing what to do Mm
3: -hmm.
2: through high school and college. um, And I can elaborate later, but uh, just to answer the question Mm -hmm. that, that drove me to want to become a coach. So no other kid would ever have to go through Mm -hmm. what I did, both technically uh, training, but also facilities and equipment, Mm -hmm. you know, all those things kept me from jumping what I thought I could have jumped, you know, know, so, so that's kind of, what got me into coaching
1: you can call it fate serendipity uh luck but that that river coming up to your house because if not now now a guy like you might have still found the vault somewhere but it's quite possible that if that doesn't happen and you guys are living in an idyllic area and it's beautiful and you become a a woodsman, you know, of a, a park right. ranger or something right. because where you're at. Right. But instead that happens, it forces you to move. And then lo and behold, there is this, you know, I got the, um uh what is it? If you build it, they will come. You know, I got the, the yeah, Iowa right. cornfield baseball <laughs> field. There like you, you look over and you're like, what did you know, I could just see you kind of like this little, you know, kid fifth grader curiosity of like, well, why is the, why are those poles staying in there? What's that box? What's that? Po- I, I don't get this. And then I, I, you, know, you see the first kid do it and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Well, that looks fun. You know, every little kid, right. you know, I think right. every little kid would love pullball tennis if they were introduced to at that age. And then that becomes a lifetime for you of, of career and passion, both as athlete coach equipment. I mean, that, that really, uh, you know, I, I, my favorite comic books were always the origin stories. That origin story for you, Dan is quite, yeah, quite amazing. Kind of yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: you know, and then right along in there after college, I thought I was going to be, I, it's funny, you just mentioned it, but I thought I was going to be a fisheries biologist. I was in fish wildlife. So I, I, um, I went to Wyoming to work in a hatchery for a couple of years and then come back and get my master's and become a biologist. And while, and I was in a pretty remote area of Wyoming, uh, Pinedale, actually I was in in Daniel. I was at the Daniel fish hatchery, but it's kind of South East of, of, uh, Jackson. And, um, I found out that maybe fisheries biology wasn't as cool as I thought it was going to mm-hmm. be um, kind of have to do politically what the state, you don't really do the main study. So, um, and um, the first year I helped out the high school, uh, the vultures a little bit, but uh, that next year, I'm still just there for two, a year and three quarters that next year. Um, I, I, it was a pretty lonely place. And I was, I mean, I had to be on the hatchery a lot um I wasn't really that happy and I got in a a car accident pretty severe and um uh, matter of fact came around the corner and there was just somebody there and I whacked into him I for a moment I thought this is it I'm done Mm -hmm. right and uh that just kind of woke me up like hey you know this could happen any moment maybe I should do what I want to do and uh so I I contacted my um senior year in college I got it we finally I finally got it. my first time I ever had actually had a coach Rob Stark and um although he didn't know anything about the pole vault he was a great great coach great man and um I called him up and I said Rob can I come back and coach for you so that summer I started training um while I was still to the hatchery for the to do a decathlon <laughs> and I thought if I'm gonna coach I should do some of the other events. So I, I built some hurdles and around the hatchery grounds, I was, he sent me a a, a shot and a disc and a javelin and uh, to, he lent me those. And I, I just um, realized that track just called me back, but it kind of took that car act to kind of wake me up. And so I went back uh, to work on my master's and start coaching at Montana state. So it was those kind of two random things because I was going off kind of in a Different direction. I thought my I thought I thought vaulting maybe was done after college, like most people do. Um, But it just kept calling me back. I just couldn't leave it alone.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, some of us have a literal car wreck, and hopefully, the most of us, because I would don't want that for anybody uh, have that metaphysical car wreck of like, Hey, what, you know, life is short at the end of the day, I I should be doing something that I'm happy. Uh, and obviously you weren't very happy with the, the, the fish, you know, wildlife biologist type, uh i think that that will kill telling my son i'm pretty sure that's what my son is going to go into he loves fish and fishing like no well, one's i still business. Fish yeah and i love hey, fish yeah, yeah. So he is. the
2: actual hatchery was not much fun yeah <laughs> I,
1: I if i had to put him in a, a profession now be like oh yeah you're a park ranger you're doing something yeah in that world yeah um so I, i'm i'm so glad that the the car crashed car accident actually didn't do anything physically to you like you know loss of life limb you know something kind of right, catastrophic right. uh for that um but you were still you mentioned you've cleared a crossbar every year for 58 years but you so you were still even through that time frame though you were still getting out there and vaulting with or without support
2: right right yeah yeah the at the, ha- i checked in with the high school coach um that first year and um, um asked if i could come and help the vaulters
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, i only vaulted a couple times but I did vault. I cleared thirteen six um, at the, which was a big bar, and that you know. So I helped the kids out, you know, at the high school level. Um, and then that next summer, I started, like I said, I started training and actually uh, went up to back to Bozeman. I was from Montana State mm-hmm. um, and uh, competed in my first my first of nine decathlons. I started doing those after college, but um, I never really trained. It's funny after that, I never really trained for the decathlon. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the vault was such an integral part. And, you know, every time we moved um, growing up. So I was in, in the uh, sixth and seventh grade in one place. Then all of a sudden I was in eighth, ninth, and tenth in Columbus, Montana. But then I was in three more high schools. So I was in four high schools. Wow. So I had just kind of learned to find a way, no matter what the situation, to to vault and that that's the one was the one constant for me
1: did you have at each of these high schools. So now I went to the same high school, but before high school, so K through eight, I went to like 20 different schools. So I'm used to being the the new guy everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to quickly find out when you're the new guy, when you go to four high schools, you have to quickly find out who's my tribe and who's not my tribe. You know who you are like, all right, I'm a vault, I like track. I like vaulting. So how do I figure out where those people are and do, is that even available at at this high school? Did you have vaulting like You said you found a way. I respect that. But was there already a vaulting program at each one of those places or did you have to like make it yourself on some of them?
2: Well, there was not much vaulting at any of those high schools. Mm. Okay, so um, my my freshman year, there was a 15 foot 180 pole, one pole. 15 180. Okay, and I'm 5'3, 120 pounds. I was a little at so, so I stepped pulled right? right. Um, sophomore, all of a sudden, this uh community guy he had never coached. Um, matter of fact, he had a bad arm from polio, uh, Bruce, and um, he just wanted to help me. And and he talked to head coach and he get me get this a 12 foot 120. How tiny is that? Right. But all of a sudden, and he he, he he did some research. There wasn't much, you know, no internet back then, obviously. Right, yeah. Uh, no videos, even. Um, very few books. But he found a, a book that had some drawings of uh, Seagrin vaulting. So he we kind of figured it out. And all of a sudden, I was bending a pole. A sophomore, jumped 10-6. I, I had the best jump in the district. I was the only fiberglass vaulter. Everybody else was still st- <laughs> stiff bowl vaulting, straight bowl. And um, I made 10-6. I, and I was like, man, I was on top of the world. I was the guy, you know, 10-6. <laughs> but as you can imagine, pretty quickly, that was not a big enough pole. I went through it. There were, there wasn't the next
3: right.
2: Um, So that the rest of the season went very poorly. Um, and it uh, really bummed me out. And we moved. And we... The school had one pole, a 15 foot, like 170, and then still too big for me, right? Um, and and that school didn't even have a track, they just put a box in the grass. I ran on the grass, three, three burlap bags of foam, and uh, I jumped 10 6 that year as a junior. Really bummed me out because I was thinking I was going to improve. I remember one day I grabbed the top of that pole and tried to bend it. And um, got rejected back out on the grass. So I stiff pulled, you know, and then senior year, I went to another school and um, they, they bought me a 12 foot 140, damn 12 foot poles, you know, so I jumped eleven six six on that, but then they wouldn't get me the next, and I went through it. So I was stuck, you know, and they, they did finally buy me a 14, 140. It's a big jump, yeah. but it came the day of the, of the divisional meet. And they said you well, would jump on it. And they didn't tell me what to do, change my step, change my handhold. And I know how I did. And I oh, thought, nice. you know, that's the end of my that's the end of my career. Very disappointed. Um, but I went to Montana State and I just he called me back. So I walked on. And the coach kind of looked at me like, really? But he he was a a really cool guy, horrible coach, an alcoholic. Serious, hmm. we drank. We drank on track trips we were the bad news bears of the track world oh you know, my and um but that first year i had a bunch of guys to jump with three other guys
1: first I, time I, ever I, right
2: first time ever yeah man, yeah and i improved up to 13 almost made 13 6 i was starting to think man i can make this work uh we did have to jump into a cloud nine. You know, oh yeah
1: is, oh the old school yeah the big, big pillow the big yeah. bag
2: that, and it had already been um it was already illegal to use those and <laughs> because they were so dangerous right, that's, right. What we had. that's what we jumped into but unfortunately my sophomore year everybody had quit so i was by myself oh. vaulting. and the same with my, my junior year a freshman guy came in and that helped a little bit so and then finally like i said my senior year i actually got the first time i ever had a coach mm-hmm. so we had actual training um and he knew i needed to do a couple of things some other things happened in there, but so I, I, I ended up jumping 14, eight, but I should have been, you know, I really should have been a 16 to 17 foot ball that. I mean, I know that now as a coach, but I was doing everything wrong. Um, there's some other stories in there about that, but, but just to tell, so those, I just kept working because I had to vault. I just had to vault. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there was no question I had to vault, um, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I was very frustrated um, by not knowing. What what why can't I jump with these other guys?
1: You know it's amazing. I like I I I think I'm tracking with you that yeah, you could have maybe should have been a 15-16, who who knows, you know, with proper equipment, proper coaching, especially in this event, the pole vault. Uh, however, the other side of that, I'm like, wow, I'm amazed that you became a 14-8 vaulter with all of this against you as well. You know, one pole a year, and you know, no, no pole vault pit, no coaching. I mean it's kind of like i see both sides i'm like wow what could have been but it's like holy cow you made the absolute best of it as well with what was the the cards that were dealt to you it's quite amazing
2: well thanks yeah i think that's what's propelled me to become a master's vaulter yeah obviously right you know um when i went back to montana state it took me probably five or six i coached there for eight years at montana state okay and uh probably the first five was just me with with learning how to become a coach studying, right, going to clinics, reading, There's became more materials. This was in the 80s, this was in the 80s till 87, I coached at Montana State. Uh, but I had to fix all my bad habits. <laughs> I was doing everything wrong and I had to learn how to ball. So doing that, having to transfer that late in life, right, so that, you know, I'm 22 to 30, right. I, I'm trying to learn how to pole ball correctly. So um, I had to learn a lot of drills, I had to learn a lot of processes of how do you turn yourself into a good technician when you've done everything really wrong. And so, and I did, you know, so when I was 32, the last year at Montana state, um, in 87, I jumped fifteen-five. Okay. So I hung in there to, and I always wanted to jump 16, obviously, but life does get in the way as you get older and coaching <laughs> and all those other things. But, but I learned how to vault, I still had a couple of technical flaws I thought um, that I later I learned later when I came out here to Eugene. but the point I'm trying to make is that um, that really helped me in coaching well,
3: because, because I, I
2: learned from myself and how hard it is to change so I understand right. that, oh, that right. See what I'm saying and and yeah. the tricks and what you've got to do to become somebody that plants horribly or way under those kind of technical issues that can really stop you. Um, I get those every year mm-hmm. with incoming freshmen. They haven't been coached correctly in high school, right. so I I have a step up on what does it take, you know. Plus, since I I I I train with my athletes, nobody does that much. Right, hardly anybody. So I vault and train, becoming less and less as I get old. Mm-hmm. Um, but my parents were musicians that that taught private lessons. My dad, trumpet player. My mom, a piano. So I grew up listening to them. No, it's like this, and they would play it correctly. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what started. I I'm old enough now. I don't really show things correctly, but but by working out with the athletes, see, I, to me, it's like it's cheating because then they'll do anything for you.
3: All right, you with
2: them, you know. So I've just always done that. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the sentences of of how I came through that. Which you pointed out, which is right. Uh, frustrating. Mm-hmm thing that in some ways i'm thankful for some ways obviously i wish i had had i wish i'd had a dan west coaching me
1: (laughs) right exactly right
2: but it's what taught me how to be the coach that i whatever whatever kind of coach i am today that's what helped me get absolutely yeah.
1: so so put a pin in that working out with the athletes because I do want to ask you about that but what I'm curious about something that you said resonated with me about the lack of coaches that you had going through high school and college career um some very well-meaning coaches I'm sure they just didn't know how to coach the vault right. uh, and then obviously you know we talk about a coach drinking there's no well-meaning there at all so that was that's that's a that's a person who wasn't cut out to be a coach you know that's that's right. the person not the profession right. there um but that resonated with me uh same in high school i didn't compete collegiately but i competed in high school and i had two sets of coaches uh freshman through junior year then we got all new coaching staff my senior year love them both Uh, i dennis anderson was the coach my first few years love him he was a shot putter for my alma mater troy state so uh love him but in he knew through he knew throws he didn't know running sprinting hurdling, nothing like that and then john gross who actually was uh who just um uh, retired as the head coach of Jacksonville State football, uh, took him to the national title. He was amazing. He was our football coach as well. Obviously, uh, he, you know, again coached us better than what Coach Anderson did, but still was not how you train a, a sprinter. Heard the, you know, the, the events right. that I was in, right? right? But I love them to death. Like, still, John Gross is when I see him once every five years, I, I hug him. I love him to death, Coach Anderson. Right. I Haven't seen in a long time. Love him to death. Very, very well many people that you know, also had, you know, they taught and they coached football. And, uh, to your point, mine was in the nineties. There still wasn't a lot of great coaching education, uh, readily available out there. Right. So I don't know, even if they wanted to be better coaches, that there was a lot of resources for them. I say all that to say, I also, when I decided to get into coaching was like, I will not let that happen to my athletes. Like they're not going to be, they're not going to re- not reach their potential because of me. It's going to be because of other things, their, their choices. Right. So I really dug deep into coaching education, uh, uh, formally as far as like USATF and and such, and also coach uh, peer-to-peer education. you know, I was always, you know, I was that nerd when I was talking to a fellow coach. Well, what do you do here? Why did you do that? You know, I was always right. well, here's what we do. What do you think about that? What did you do? How was your when you went back into coaching you're at Montana State, and again you're talking about you're in the 80s here still not a lot of great resources first of all not a lot of great resources at, at all and then the ones that were out there were still extremely hard to get to camps clinics videos uh, again no youtube etc no uh no real magazines you know track and field news of course and tra- uh, track journal or track coach whatever they used to call it uh, but there's just not a lot of resources how did you externalize that internal feeling of like okay I didn't get great coaching. Well, I'm going to be the best coach that I can be. How did you externalize that? How did you do that?
2: Well, I was fortunate. Um, there was a, a great track clinic every year in Washington, Ken Shannon put on. So I was at, and we, and with Rob Stark, who was the head coach my senior year. And then he was, he was my head coach through that whole time at Montana state. And we went as a staff, mm-hmm. um, and actually, and Montana still has a great coaching clinic in the summers, the adults, and, and so we went to that, and they would have outside speakers. Um, I think um, at one point, uh, we had an assistant, women's assistant, um, and uh, she had a friend, uh, Robert Pillard, who was uh, um, at the time was one of the top, had been one of the top vaulters, uh, one of the few earliest maybe the the first black guy to, to be a, a national international class falter and uh, they were friends and she talked him into coming to do a, a clinic on the vault and some other things um so i learned a lot there um there was some um there's a little bit more literature obviously um and i studied the, i had to study the other i was the jumps coach so i had to coach mm. i jump, long jump triple jump so there was a lot and a lot of carryover obviously with approach work and sprinting. so i there was that literature but you know one of the biggest things was um i got fortunate i had a couple of really good athletes mm. so i learned from them um pretty quickly some stuff and watched what they were doing and kind of kind of followed through with that um you know before that one interestingly um so one of the mistakes i made um and i try to help athletes i i was pretty shy when i was vaulting um wasn't sure i belonged in a certain sense so i i didn't talk it wasn't that i didn't want to i was just afraid to talk to other vaulters mm-hmm. and um so i encourage my guys always and gals now uh to you know to interact with other vaulters um uh, because you can learn a lot from and and especially you know i always have a big group so i, I want them to uh not coach each other but help each other out Mm -hmm. but when you're around other vaulters assemble be aware of that it happens but if you're aware of it it happens quicker so Mm -hmm. uh, you know i i think i learned that from coaching some some better athletes you know and i i looking back at my vault career i was afraid to talk to anybody Mm -hmm. so at meets and that would have been my one chance to you know but a thing happened once a little side story here that is kind of interesting um after my junior year it was the last year that um uh, my bad coach was the head coach and big uh, skies were going to be at NAU and so a, a very limited squad and I had jumped the best I had been jumping but I didn't make that team okay um to go and that broke my heart um I was just really depressed I wasn't jumping as well as I wanted to and um um the last meet was kind of a last chance qualifier, but I knew I wasn't going to get to go. But um, I was vaulting and this guy, James Tally from Idaho State, he was a 15, 6, 16 foot guy, way better vaulting than me. He walked up to me at the end of the meet and says, why do you take off so far under? And I said, what do you mean? See, nobody did ever even said, he said, well, you're a foot and a half under. There's no way you can jump. Your foot should be underneath your top hand. I go, really? He goes, yeah. I'm like, huh. He said, that's a big deal, man. I don't know how you jump as high as you jump. So I went back and talked to the head coach, and he this is what he always said. Well, Dan, you just gotta do your own thing. Well, my own thing <laughs> wasn't working, right? <laughs> so I um I was I, I said, well, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm done. I thought I'm done. Um so a couple of weeks later, just track out before the end of school. I thought, nah, you know, right? Oval calling me back. So I asked him, "Can I take a pole and a crossbar home with me?" He said, "Yeah, he didn't care, sure." So we lived. My dad lived in um, Belfry, which is just outside Yellowstone Park in in Montana. Uh, he was he was living on a ranch farm, renting the house. So there was this this big, huge, ten foot you know 50 foot long 10 foot high pile of silage right chopped up corn and so i built a little wood box right at the base of that i had a down i made myself a path through the sagebrush Um, there was a little irrigation canal so i built a little bridge to run over went out and got two lodgepole pines and made them the standards and um i could smooth out the dirt and as it turned out, um, the bridge became a check mark for me. So I, I knew where okay. I had to step on the bridge so I could take off correctly. Okay. And it started, and all of a sudden, I got my step out. And so, you know, I was jumping 12 feet. It was a small pole. Um, so I only had to fall two feet into the silence because it was 10 feet high. Okay. And so I vaulted that summer by myself and I smoothed out the dirt. And I slowly got, and all of a sudden I got my step on and it was like, oh, this is, this is easy. <laughs> this is great. So that kind of, that kept me vaulting my senior year, but it, it gave me that, that was kind of one of those breakthrough aha moments of mm. how important doing something correctly was. Yeah. And, and so, um, that just kind of, that's kind of sensitive to of why I was a coach and, and how I learned how to coach,
1: you know. We we like to demonize today in 2023 that everybody has a cell phone and social media. But listening to you tell that story and, and I have to create the video in my head. You you had the video in your head, you did it, right? I, I sit there and go, Oh my gosh, Dan, if you could have had pictures from that day, from videos from that, I mean that's like that's amazing, right? And that's what I love about cell phones and social media like we have that today. Like I, I the other day, uh, this high school gal, she's teaching either. I don't know if she's teaching herself or she has someone helping her, but she's learning the hammer. Right. And right. so, you know, she threw it like 40 feet or something like that, but she was, I think she's a fairly accomplished javelin thrower actually. And, uh, and she was like, oh, you know, I'm starting to feel the turns a little bit, you know? And I was like, Hey, I, I commented on it. And I was like, bookmark this tweet, but you know, keep this video because in 4 to 8 year I don't know what year she is in high school but you know in, in some amount mm-hmm. of year like you're going to be Decent at it at least. I mean, yeah, right. who knows? She may go on to be an Olympian in it for crying out loud. But I bet you because she's starting early, she's gonna be pretty decent. And it'll be so cool to see, you know, a video of today, today being 2029, 20, of her throwing 180 feet. I don't know. And then right, right after that, show her right. you know, the first time yeah. she threw in, she threw 40. Like that's amazing. Right. So I, I mean, yeah. for that, what you're describing there you know, through the bushes, and uh, you know, you had to build a little bridge. <laughs> that's amazing, and that becomes your midpoint as soon <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like I would love to see that video, man. That is quite amazing, and really, yeah. uh, you know, the definition of "I will let not, nothing uh, stop me." Like I, I will figure things out one way or, or the other. I will figure it out. I love it. You, you know, you answered one of my questions. I was going to ask you. I, I remember for my own coaching education, and you you nailed it with the aha moment. uh One of the first clinics I went to was Marshall Goss, then the head coach at Indiana University, and he was talking about hurdles and how to coach hurdlers. <sighs> and spacing and height of the hurdles and it was like this aha like this light turned on where I was like oh like there's an actual way to coach her not just set them up and say go and it was like oh wait a minute I bet that's like for every event I bet there's like actually progressions and teaching and things like oh man so for you to have that aha moment of like oh I'm under I didn't even know what under meant there's just this is the way I did it. You're telling me this is wrong. Oh, wait a minute. Well, that means there's might be other things that I'm doing wrong and right. I should should learn. Yeah. So I, I told can you to good. Can
2: I yeah, can I just real quick? So the other aha moment, um, my other quick story is that um so um well, just you might ask this, but just a quick synopsis. I left Montana State because I got married and they weren't gonna pay me anymore and I, I couldn't survive. So I went to work. For Ampro, which was Border Pit Catapult for one year. Oh, yeah. we we'll talk about that later. Um, but I couldn't, Southern California wasn't for me. So my wife and I just said, Where are we going? So we came to Eugene, just came here with no jobs. And I I just forced my way. So I became coach at Lane for three years. And then um, some, uh, Andre Chasinski Chiz- left Oregon. He was the vault coach, the Nike coach. So I just walked into Bill diligence and said, You need to hire me as your vault coach. And he said, Okay. So I've coached at Oregon from 90, um, 90, through 96. And then some other things happen. But the, the other major thing that happened to me was in 93, um, Sergei Buka jumped at the pre. He came a week early. So I got to watch him train. Okay. And, um, so I'm, you know, I'm becoming a better coach. I feel like, but I, 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 I know there's things I'm not quite following through with, you know, and, um, so here's Sergey Buka, who arguably best ever, right? 35 world records uh, uh, at the time.
1: Okay. I was about to say today uh, you have to have maybe a different discussion at the time, but for sure. Well, up until today, there,
2: but 35, 35 world records is 35 world records.
1: All right, Dan, we're going to have to get into this discussion now. Okay. Yeah. But it's the vault where you could set it a quarter inch at a time. I know, now, I know I'm not, now, just, I'm not just, taking, we'll, I'm not taking away his right. greatness uh, up until yeah. today certainly Buka yeah. was the best yeah. alter yeah. and yeah. and by the way number two is not a bad place because the guy who's doing it now who i think oh, is no, number one be and,
3: the best. and, and yeah. i don't
1: think he's getting enough credit for what he's doing today mondo like i know he's getting a lot of credit but you know we're still talking about noah lyles and and, and by the way noah lyles should also right. be talked about and, right. um, and sydney and etc and nothing i mean they're doing right. amazing but no one's as dominant as mondo no, is right now no,
2: and I would, I would have that uh, discussion and believe it absolutely. But, you know, e- but even if you can do the same thing again, even if it's one centimeter, you do it again and again and again. It's
1: certainly. That's right. That's a great point. But anyway,
2: so at the time, great but one point. of his great attributes was his plant and takeoff. Mm. You know, um, certainly Buka was as good um, a technician at that point, And everybody thought he was way faster, but now we see Mondo's even faster. So, I mean, you know, there's all those, but that was a fact. And so here's, here's, the best guy in the world doing walking clamp drills.
1: You've never with, seen that before.
2: With and without a pole. Uh-huh. Doing drills that high school kids
1: are past. Uh...
2: Focused to the max doing walking. And I went, oh, so that's the secret. Uh... Not, not just doing them, but having the discipline to focus on that basic thing yeah. that, where everything else comes from in the vault. And, and, you know, and I had been lucky enough to, to be around some national international class, American vaulters. They would no more have done something at that time. They would no more have done something like that. They, they were way past that,
3: huh.
2: you know? And I, it, so it also, and I realized, so that's a story that every kid gets with, yeah. that I coach. And, And I drive them crazy because we do those same kind of drills and I am on them that everything has to be perfect at that level. And then I'm way less perfectionist when they vault, Hmm. you know, because you got to give some people some room. But Hmm. the point being is I learned that that's the secret is, can you be disciplined enough to not just do the basics, but to do them correctly
1: to do to do the fundamentals at a really high level
2: at a high level and, yeah. and focused so that that just changed my whole world view of oh so that's that's what i if i want to be that coach i want to be that i gotta start doing that
1: so so i'm gonna i asked you to put a pin on something we're gonna keep a pin because yeah okay a, i, I want to know why eugene you guys just up and so you're down in southern california working for Ampro. pro I know you'd lived in Oregon before, but you're really a Montana guy at this point. That's right. where a lot of your right. fundamental right. years had been yep. going. Why Why did you just pick Eugene?
2: Well, a couple of reasons. Um, uh, my wife had been born and and spent a couple of years on the Northwest, but she had lived almost her entire life in Montana, in Bozeman. And um, spring, so she had kind of an affinity for the North Northwest. And, and um, we had come out, when I coached at Montana State, um, spring break, we had come out to Eugene for the for the preview um meet that they had. Um a lot of times on our own with one or two athletes. Um I'd come out and, and seen Hayward Field, right? And uh I didn't like snow, never did like snow. <laughs> um and um I just felt like um I just had I just always had a great feeling in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. And, you know and it was it wasn't quite track down then so this is this is this is um the early 80s but still you know right it was still um the trials in 80 had been at hayward that was the last time until for quite a few years they weren't there oh, right. um right you know that was the the olympics that didn't happen for us right. but the trials were there so i mean there was that but we were down in california and and had no options. we just said where do we want to live and we both thought, well, Eugene's, and um, a little aside, when I, the first year I coached at Montana State, there was this great guy that was an athlete for us that threw shot and disc of, by the name of Lance Deal. <laughs> so I i I never coached Lance, but I was one of the coaches for Lance. Okay? okay. And so Lance and and Nancy were living in Eugene. So, and Chris had a friend actually that was living in Eugene. So we thought, you know uh, at least we know somebody there yeah so we just packed up and uh moved to uh moved to eugene lovely you know? found a way to we found jobs we just mm-hmm. found a way to make it
1: here yeah love love lance deal he's a guild podcast alum and my favorite trivia question about lance and I, i'll instead of asking us a question i'll just say it i was blown away i visited montana state i don't know probably 10 years ago i'm sure i've told you you dan this story and I go and they have the records books, you know, the record boards. And I go to look at the hammer because I'm thinking, oh, of course, Lance Deal holds the school record. I mean, come on. No. In fact, I when I interviewed him, I looked it up on my phone while we were interviewing. I think he's like fourth, fifth or sixth. Like He's down, but like he's not number two even like he's down. In fact, he owns the discus school record, though, which I found quite amazing, but uh, just was amazed that he did not own the state, right. uh, the school record for, you know, the event he goes on and wins a medal American right. record. I mean, that's just phenomenal. That's just phenomenal. So you've yeah. been to Eugene. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I thought it was like this, you know, throw a dart. And, All right. We're going to go to Eugene because they vault there and I'm a vaulter. So that's where I'm going. Right. So the, the second part of that story though, Dan, that just was like, I got to hear more about this. You said you walked into Bill Dellinger now, come on. If you're going to make a Mount Rushmore of college track and field coaches, a lot of people are going to have him on the Mount Rushmore this is a big time coach and you just walked in his office like hey you need to hire me as your vault coach well
2: not quite in those words but almost (laughs) (laughs) so uh i coach in at lane and had some success with some kids um and um on had did a you know a great coach obviously uh but he was more focused on his his group had more post-collegiate olympic athletes um so, uh, Nike kind of pulled their funding for him. So I'm right. quick coaching. And, um, I mean, there was a big gap there and it's the vault. You need somebody that's, you know, so I just, I just thought, you know, and it was a little scary, a little intimidating, but, um, you know, and there's nothing like being kind of young, you know, right. <laughs> so you just don't know. So I just thought, you know what, um, I'm, you know, I'm just going to walk in there and tell him that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm his guy and, uh, um, and it, he, he, yeah, let's go, let's it do it, let's try out. and, to, you know, and, and, you know, he's, I'd say Rob Stark is my, was my first mentor, but certainly Bill Dillinger was a, a an important mentor for me because, you know, some people criticized Bill, and I don't think they quite understood him, and he was a little, he kind of got left behind uh, with the way track is now, he was still too old school, um, he just, he had learned from Bowerman, and he just, recruiting wasn't what they did,
3: Hmm.
2: and and it was not really what you should do hmm. okay uh people should want to come to your school and then you coach them uh but all all the all the little nuances that he had that made him such a great coach i really really listened to um he was not a micromanager at all he let me coach and if i had questions he'd help me out um to me he's one of the best coaches obviously that i've ever got the opportunity not just i mean not just because of his um position but the coach that he was and the mm-hmm. person that he was. and we got along great. It's funny. A lot of people thought he hated the ball um, because he used to get really mad at Andre because Andre would not focus the training or his guys for the PAC 12 championship or even NCAAs. He was always trying to focus them for summer meets because that's how he had always coached. Mm. And uh, that drove. So there was a lot of no heights at PAC 12. Mm. So Bill was, but Bill loved the vault and uh, he, he had actually wanted to, he wished he had been a vaulter. He was a a gymnast in high school along with a distance runner. So, so we got along great. He loved it. And um, I think he liked my passion my energy level. So those years were great coaching with him. And I I feel like I really learned a lot.
1: That's cool. Were you still practicing with the athletes at Oregon as well? Yeah. Yeah, you You let me train so I'm curious about that because I've, I've had this thoughts philosophy of that topic, but it's usually typically born around distance runners and coaches uh, with a distance coach running with their athletes, both in maybe their more casual long run okay. uh, and even in workout, you know, repeat one ks whatever. And I've always, and I can remember having this discussion back when I was a high school coach. So this is back in 94, 95, long, long time, or 95, 96, long, long time ago. And and I'm sure, you know, we're, we're all just kind of a mashup of other people. You know, you talk about Dell right. and other coaches, you know, people speak into you and, you know, things that resonate with you, you kind of, you carry on. So I'm sure I heard this from someone else, but I remember I've always had this philosophy of like, oh, you can never win as a coach who competes or who practices with your athletes. Cause on one hand, if you're beating them, it's a little demoralizing for them that here's this, you know, no matter what your actual age is, you're older than, so here's this old guy beating me, you know, whether you're 25 years old, whether you're straight out of college, it's still like, well, man, this guy's past his prime, I'm supposed to, I'm trying to get where he is or she is, and they're beating me, so there's a, a demoralizing effect, and then if and when they, remember, it's all kind of in distance running land for me, uh, when they go on to start beating you in long runs or repeats, there's like a, you know, the thought was for in my head was always that, well, there's a loss of respect of like, well, you know, how can you coach me? I'm beating you, you know, I'm physically beating, like, not just, you know, it's not just on paper that I could beat you like here it is, we're actually doing it. Now, having said all that, when you were describing, um, not competing, when you describe practicing with your athletes as a vaulter, that I didn't get the same like normally if, if a distance, if you were a distance coaching told me that, I'd be like, mm, I don't know. Don't know if I agree with you on that one there, Coach Dan. But when you yes. said it with Vaulting, I was like, well, you know, vaulting's different, not only because it's a different event, it's a different culture. I I that possibly could work. Out. Obviously, it has, you know, if, through your career, but that that was resonated with me. You you never had any issues, the ones I kind of described in my head of distance world. You never had those issues of disrespect of, like, oh man, Dan, you're jumping, Coach West, you're jumping 13 feet. I'm a 15-foot vaulter. Just get out of here you, you never had any issues with that
2: no no i I think you know um as in most things in life it's how you approach it mm-hmm. correct um so i i talk with my athletes and i'm real honest with them and so we set it out from the beginning correctly and uh i believe that one of the mistakes that coaches make is um some coaches um their self-worth becomes their athlete's success
1: Mm, oh 100
2: their ego gets in the way
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um so i tell my athletes that's not going to happen with me my my self-worth is my own vaulting i'm here to help you i'm your coach i want you to be the best you can be um i get my own self-worth so and and so we started out that way so i'm just training Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there are still actually, it's funny, there's a couple of exercises, since I'm an old wise guy, I know how to do them correctly. I still beat some athletes on a couple of testing things, mm-hmm. um, strength, balance kind of things. Um, but it, I never come at it as I'm beating you. I just, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it. So, you know, it, it's how you present it. You know, if there are real, there are people that like to brag. And set it up as a competition right and if you come at it that way then what you're saying is absolutely but if it's i just love the pole vault i'm working out you know um, uh we're going to move the pit i move the pit with them i mean we are a team so i'm part of that team yeah i'm the coach but we're part of that team so that's I, that's how i think i've gotten it through and and the kids they of course now for the last 10 years right i'm just this crazy old guy right yeah right yeah.
1: it's certain, some age you get right. there right <laughs> yeah you know
2: so now that's not even but the fact i even do it you know they're just like yeah hey that's a good you point. know coach you know um um and i do i do less a little bit less all the time there's sure. some things i just can't quite do sure. um i don't want to hold them up but i used to sprint with you know i'm not the fastest guy um but i used i mean but i still do mo- almost all the workouts yeah so um it is a balance and um you know they're they're first my training is second always so i keep that perspective if it and that's where a lot of people lose it too. it. their training is more important than their mm. coaching yeah. so if you do that then you've lost it yeah the kids know that so you know um i'm just doing it with them so i've just found this this place where it worked for me i don't know if it worked for everybody i've been fortunate that every head coach i've ever had there's been a couple that kind of didn't want me to do it, mm-hmm. but I had to explain to them that that's was not going to happen. I was, mm-hmm. that's the way I do it. So, and the vault is specialized enough, right? That mm-hmm. people are desperate to have a vault coach. So they probably let me do almost anything.
1: Yeah, you do have, if you're a vault coach, and especially if you're a good vault coach, you've got some upper hands out there. That's for, yeah, for exactly. sure. Yeah. I I found it interesting when you talked about, you know, coaches who find their self-worth, their identity uh, in what their athletes are doing. Um, Because earlier you had mentioned about like having your athletes talk to other vaulters, you know, good vaulters. And that even you had uh, at one point were like, oh man, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase this in my words. uh, So correct me if if I'm misspeaking here a little bit, uh, like, oh, I'm not worthy enough to talk to this 18 foot, I'm I'm a 12 foot vaulter. And I've seen that. And what's interesting, I had that a little bit as well, but uh, I'll see that with when we have you know, we, we try to have at least one teammate here at Gill who's a vault specialist. Right. Right. Um, And even like, you know, one who just uh, was here and now works for Anheuser-Busch of all companies. He's amazing. We love him. Uh, In fact, he was on the the Gill podcast, River Morrow. River was, you know, he was an okay vaulter. I mean, first of all, I never vaulted. So you're amazing if you (laughs) clear any stinking bar in my book, but, um, but you know, he wasn't a a national qualifier or anything like that, but he was a good, solid, uh, you know, mid-major, whatever you want to call it at uh, Coastal Carolina. Um, but he and I would have talks, and I'm like, "Hey, yeah, you know, let me introduce you to Jeff Hartway. You know, Jeff's a good friend of mine." I'm like, "Oh, let me." You. He's like, "Oh, I don't, mm, I don't know, man. That guy jumped six meters and." american record holder i was like oh yeah, know it's just jeff bro like <laughs> i know he, he he jumped really high i get that but you know what he's just i mean he's a he's a normal person like, that's something he did really well but like he has a lot of other things that who he is you know he's uh you know he's a father and he's a friend and he's a reptile you know uh breeder like he's that's not his right. identity just like it's not your identity that you were uh, i can't remember what rivers pr was but it's like that's that doesn't that doesn't jive, man. Like you, you, you know, you, you have passion for the vault, so you should be able to talk to the Brad walkers, the um, yep. uh, Derek miles, Toby, Steve, you know, th- those are they're right. people first, that happen to do something right. really amazing, but they're people first. So Absolutely. I, I, I love that uh, kind of reminder of like, that's not your identity, who you are, your PR while it is extremely important. No one's a bigger fan of PRs than I am. That's not your identity. That just happens oh. to be what you have done in that specific event up to this right. point.
2: Yeah. You know, and there's quite a few events in track and field that are like that, but uh, certainly the pole vault humbles you pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if, if you, if you're authentic and, and you, you give it your best shot, you run down there and you plant the pole and bend and get upside down. Um, then you you have everybody's respect. Yeah. In the vault, whether you're a 10 foot vaulter or a 20 foot vaulter. And, and if, if you don't, have any airs about you or if you're not defensive if you're just there then you're accepted and that that is a beautiful thing about the vault and obviously in the vault we are a pretty close-knit community yeah so you can be a part of that community which was a, a lesson i learned along the way too like oh i can be a part of this mm-hmm. you know, right um one time at the summit i was vaulting and uh, i you know i must have been 45 between 45 and 50 in that time frame and uh I was getting myself pumped up to jump 14 feet. It's a good jump for my age group.
3: Yeah. And
2: Toby walked by and got all pumped up with me, Toby Stevenson. Yeah. So, you know, uh, those things happen.
1: That's cool. Right? Yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Take
1: and in. at the end of the day, if you're a vaulter, you end like your whole career, you end as a failure. You lose every, <laughs> you un- you're unsuccessfully for 99.9% vaulters, you're ending on failure. So, it's a little yeah. different ball game just for that yeah, alone absolutely <laughs> so you are at oregon for i think you said six seven eight years somewhere around there or right. what what why, why leave what happened
2: um ncaa mm-hmm. um i had a really good alter jeremy williams and um he um jumped 17 eight at washington state um getting ready to jump 18 he was a, a decathlete somewhat too but mostly a vaulter and uh after that meet Bill called me and said, Dan, I hate to tell you this, but there's a rule I wasn't aware of. And you know, the rules on volunteer coaches have changed. Mm-hmm. And that was the year where um we were a split program, men only. Um, so you get three mm-hmm. volunteer coaches across country, and indoor and outdoor, but you could only co- you could only travel with the season that you were designated for. Mm-hmm. So I was the indoor coach. So that means. We got busted. I couldn't travel. Huh. And I thought, oh what, I'm volunteering and now I can't even go to the meets.
1: Yeah, this seems really dumb. Yeah.
2: I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know, and, and Jeremy went to the pack, he got second at, at Pack Twelves down in Tempe, but he made some mistakes going to polls, right? And then he went to nationals and and uh, Bob Fraley told me, Man, it's too bad you weren't there because Jeremy really needed you. It was a little swirly wind. And he, mm. you know, he he had a chance to have been. You know, 18-4 and play, spin and all American. Um, And I just thought, you know, it's bad enough you're not paying me. Now you're not going to let me go to meet. So I'm I'm done with this. So I just um, coached some high schools and opened people and masters people for a few years, um, the end of the 90s. And then in 2000, um, another one of my really good friends and a guy that uh, helped mentor me, but Grady O'Connor, who it's funny, he had actually been an athlete. At, at oregon um football player intermediate hurdler um but he was the the head coach at lane community college hmm. and grady at that time in 2000 he said he said dan you got to come out and co- i need a vault coach and you can come one day a week two days a week whatever you want i just need somebody so that's when i started back because i had coached at lane right. from 88 to 91 for a couple of years or i coached both at lane and at UVO, hmm. and then realized that that maybe there was an NCAA violation potential there. So I quit coaching at Lane. So in 2000, I started coaching at Lane again. And um, I've been there ever since.
1: That had to be like a dagger in your heart. You know, again, Fraley, one of the pioneers of, of pole vaulting for us in this era to say, hey, Dan, boy, too bad you couldn't have been there. He really could have used you, and through no fault of your own, it's not like you chose a, a different event or you know to not go. All that I mean, th- that's like devastation for coach.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, you know, and and it's I mean, um, it's pretty exciting to be. It was pretty exciting to be at Oregon, you know, and and um, I inherited a British vaulter when I first started. So uh, Mike Edwards, and um, he improved enough that his sponsor brought me so I, I got to coach mike at the 91 world championships and oh, really? uh really at tokyo and at the barcelona olympics so i got to coach at the olympics wow. and and it was um he did pretty good at tokyo and did horrible that's a whole other story but um but i did that level and i coached and once again for me you know trying to always balance keep my uh, ego it, it's certainly great um to coach great athletes and be in that spotlight. And, and it, it, it's it's one of the best experiences of my life, but but that's not why I coach. And uh um, if if I have somebody um just a couple of years ago, I had a, a little gal, a little girl, she was an eight-foot vaulter, and I let her walk on because I know her coach from high school, and she it was it was a nightmare until finally she figured some things out and she jumped her last meet, she jumped 10 feet for her. That was, and I never thought that was going to happen. A little five foot, and just, and and so for me, that's as important huh. as sitting in the stands and being an Olympic
3: coach. Absolutely.
2: So at that point, that the amount of politics and pressure that there is at Oregon, even mm-hmm. back then, but mm-hmm. now especially, um, that's it's not worth it to me. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of people, and actually, my athletes ask me, well, "Why do you coach at Lane Community College, mm-hmm. right?" Well, you know, uh, there's a, a a number of reasons. One of the big reasons is because I can, there's no recruiting violations. So high school kids can come and jump with me. Mm-hmm. I can help uh, coach calls me up. I, I can't, can't, I don't know what's going on here. They can come and vault with me. Um, I, there's no restriction on how many bolters I can have, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little tough to get kids to the junior college sometimes, but I'm free. I'm free. I get to help kids and develop them and hopefully send them off to a four-year school if that's what they want to do some of them they just want to jump a little bit more and then there's done with school you know there's all those different, but i get to just coach with no politics and yeah. and we're fortunately we have great facilities and i've been <laughs> in long enough i have enough poles so those things that we talk about i have a good facility i have equipment and and um, i've got kids um i only not have them for two years which is hard sometimes sometimes it's good you should move along, <laughs> um, but so it's a perfect situation—no pressure of that, and and not—I mean, there's still pressure right. to compete well, but right, you know, right now, the—I mean, being an Oregon is a—that's a tough gig right now.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, that's interesting. That, like that picture of the 180 of no, you know, growing up with no facilities and no poles and no coaching, and now you know, lane arguably one of the top facilities um, and some of it's because of proximity of right. Eugene with Olympic trials and pre-Fontaine's and stuff. You guys are the, um, you know, dedicated practice track for a lot of the right. athletes coming in from other countries and other places in the United States. Uh, that's quite amazing where you started to where you are, my friend. <laughs>
3: right.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Wow. yeah. You know um, I'm a former junior college coach myself from in the Kansas world, Kansas Jayhawk conference. There's my understanding, maybe it's four. There's several different groups of junior colleges. You have the California, they have their own North and South California system. You have the NJCAA. I think there is a division three. That's probably still under NJCA kind of up in the Northeast. And then you have this Northwest. I've never really understood it. Can you just talk to us about this Northwest junior college system that Lane Community College is in? Well,
2: I think it was Originally, they they broke it up into three. You're right. There's three, and the reason was um, just cost saving measures. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they, that's what they decided. So there's three national meets. There's California. There's the Northwest Athletic NWAC, mm-hmm. and then there's the rest of the country, which mm-hmm. seems kind of strange to me. Mm-hmm. But 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 there's enough schools in California, obviously, and the yeah. NWAC is is Washington, Idaho, um, Oregon. Really, that's it that's it that so so we have our own championship meet so there's and each each of those three uh, the top three placers are all americans so there's nine all americans each year and, and three national champions
3: mm-hmm. so
2: so we have um you know as in track we go to meets all over the place um but we have our championship meet hmm. we have we have a regional meet in oregon uh, right before in wax that is a championship meet just Mm -hmm. the Oregon schools, Uh, but that's just a thing that we do ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not, but yeah, it's, it's a, um, it seems kind of strange and it would be nice if there was one national meet maybe, but you know, finances being what they are. So that's why they've done that.
1: To, to your knowledge, have they ever talked about assimilating into the NJCAA? Because I, I get travel and, and budget. Come on, you know, right. you and I, we get budgets better maybe than anybody. Uh, but, you know, New York is still coming to wherever the NJCAA and know, Florida, I'm not, and wherever. Right, yeah.
2: right. I'm not sure why they've yeah. done it that way, but that's that was the rationale. That's interesting. That and so, yeah, that's just the way it is
1: now. So, And you're under your own separate rule book there.
2: Well, uh, it's our conference. I mean, all junior colleges, the rule book mostly we follow the NCAA rulebook. Okay. Um, but, but we also have some of our own and maybe each conference. I think each conference has their own. I mean, for a huh. while we couldn't recruit outside of, um, we had to only recruit uh, from states that were adjacent to the NWAC.
1: Yeah, that's what I wondered. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: But now they've kind of loosened that. They're it's evolving like all conferences are okay. and now they just passed the thing where a kid can transfer one time without okay. to that's been a that's been a thing where you had to get uh, released from your school but now you can just transfer so you okay. know it's slowly it kind of evolves along like what what the rest of the uh what division one things but but basically um you know we we only have few waivers we don't have full right scholarships uh that's an NWAC thing
3: okay
2: and school thing so You know, there are some kind of conference things that we have to follow.
1: The uh, junior college, whether you're in California, Oregon, or middle of Kansas, um, you know, it's really special to me. Again, partly because I'm so glad that I at least spent one year there coaching. You know, I respect high school coaches. It's an unbelievable job what you do getting kids that have never done any event most of the time and creating teams out of that and helping them go on to be recruited by, Two-year and four-year institutions, and it's amazing what four-year college coaches on every level, NEIA, Division Three, etc., what they do, going out and trying to find the best high schoolers they can to come into their their uh, their four-year institution. A junior college coach is doing both. You are routinely looking for what high schoolers can you bring to your team, and what sophomores can you help move on to the next route. And so that NJ, uh, I say the NJCA because that's the meet I go to. The junior college National meet—it's really special to me. I mean, these are kids that are, you know, um, for lack of better terms, you know, misfits. Needed second tries, third tries, four tries. No one wanted them. They weren't good enough at the time to go four year, etc. And they just needed someone to believe in them. In the middle of Kansas or the middle uh, outside of Eugene, it's it's right. really like when I see the national meet when I see the the meet that you guys host there, and I look at the results, and I'm just like, wow, man, these kids. Like someone believed in them. They believed in themselves too, by the way, to your point about some kids just want to vault for a couple more years and they end up becoming really stinking good. Uh, it, it's, that's a different, I don't know, man. That's just a different to me. It's just, it's much more heartfelt. I watch these, these meets and I'm just like, oh man, like bravo to you. You didn't give up <laughs> and someone didn't well, give up on you.
2: Exactly, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's a, it is a really, um, I feel obviously I'm biased, but it's important um, place for kids to land. Uh, for an awful lot of kids you know um obviously we have a lot of kids that academically aren't ready and we can help them with that um and we have an awful lot of kids that athletically aren't ready and and a lot of times because you know especially in the ball, you know i get kids that all the time i got a girl coming in this year um she had one pole in high school she had one pole it's
1: the dan west the dan West West
2: special uh, she didn't jump very (laughs) high And uh, she's going to walk on and we'll see, you know, Um, somebody that you know, uh, Morgan Fawson, she walked on to my program because she was not a good high school vaulter. And I wasn't sure that I even wanted her to walk on. That's how I mean, she was a 10 foot one time 10 foot vaulter, wasn't bending the pole uh, much and had no idea what she was doing. So, okay, you can walk on, you know. And we'll see. And then all of a sudden, she's somebody that I just, wow, one of the best people I've ever coached,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, person-wise. And she developed, she, all of a sudden, she's a 12-6 school record holder and, and then goes on. And it, it was, she had some struggles at Eastern Washington, but to end up being a, a second-team All-American, jump 13-9, <laughs> I mean, that that's a success story. You
1: yeah, know, I,
2: I 100%. I helped her helped her along the way find out who – morgan really was so right. and you know the cool thing about junior colleges is, is the reality uh the first two years in college you're going to take the same classes
3: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
2: nobody nobody gets behind by going to a junior college you know and every once in a while i get i mean i talk to some kids that could go to a four-year into coming just because they want to they want to jump with me and be a part of our program um but most of the time there's a reason why kids and, and we right. lose a lot of kids. I mean, there's a reason. So that, that's a frustrating part. Uh, a lot of kids decide they don't want to go to school. They flunk out
3: um, mm.
2: pretty much. You have to decide you don't want to go to school to flunk out of junior college. You know, you have to work at it right. basically, you know, but that happens all the time. Some kids decide they don't want to be an athlete anymore. Mm. Um, and like I said, you know, we, we end up sending kids, you know, we've got some kids at Oregon um, You know, uh, I've sent kids to Washington You know, a lot of the big sky schools For sure, yeah. I have a lot of contacts there So that is a fun part Trying to help them, get them ready, send them yeah. off Um, and, and the kids that just Wanted to jump, you know, hopefully they Jump to PR and they're happy Um, You know, and so many kids that are Trying to decide if they want to stay or not I, I tell them, well, you know, someday you're going to be 45, 50 years old You're going to look back and ask yourself Why did I quit that? What could I have done? I said, so here's your, ch- you got the rest of your life to work. Here's your chance to find out how, how you can vote. You know, right. don't give it up. Don't give it up. Hang in there with it. Um, but a lot of kids just, they get parental pressures, societal pressures, and they decide they, they have to work. Yeah. They, they don't, they don't hang in there, which I think is unfortunate for them. They got, to, they, they'll realize down the road, we all, we all have to work at some point. Why not take advantage of that college experience?
1: Yeah, so not, not much is important 18 to 22 year olds, meaning not much you can do is going to affect 40, 50. I mean, that's 20 years from now. You got a lot of time to make mistakes and still make things happen. I I didn't find my career here until I was 30 for crying out loud. So yeah, Yeah. you you know, the, the story about Morgan and I'm sure other sports probably say the same thing, but you know, that, it always makes me think of like, man, what could the records be the world records, the school records, et cetera. If, mean, we're already the number one participated sport on high school and collegiate level. So we, we certainly have our, our number of at bats, if you will. But I wonder, like, you know, for the famous side of it, like, man, what if LeBron James had been a long jumper or a high jumper? Like, there's so many amazing athletes in other sports. And there's so many amazing athletes just walking the streets that never even tried or wanted to try pole vaulting, high jumping, hammer throwing. It's like, man, there's, you know, you know, there's some 22-foot pole vaulter just walking around that never... Didn't know what the pole vault was. Was a you right. know was a chess player in high school. Right. I don't know, but it's like yeah. man, if we could figure out how to get everybody at least try the sport, <laughs> I, I just know there's some athletes that we have just missed yeah. just because they're not they're not in the sport. They're not in the sport. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: So, you know, here at Gill Athletics, you know, we're manufacturers. So we we make the equipment that is out there. So pits and hurdles and poles and um, discuses. I mean, it's quite amazing. I always tell people it's kind of like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory right across that wall, right over there. It's quite amazing what the men and women do back there. I'm I'm in awe. It's like black magic to me. We bring in this stick of steel, cut it, weld it, paint it, voila, there's a pole vault standard. It, it boggles my mind. I'm just not a, a handy guy. And then we have this Great, great partnership with companies around the country and the company that you work for, Dan, and worked for as long as I've known you uh, on track and field uh, first with the great Ron Morris. And we, you know, we're going to have to have a story of a Ron story here because, you know, you don't get to become a gold medalist in the pole vault and have a vaulter on the show without, you know, talking about that. Uh, And now uh, Steve owns it, Steve Ringgold there uh, doing a great job. You guys have um there at on track have represented uh, and served coaches around the country uh, i was thinking of it in california but i gotta remind myself first of all you're not in california and you serve lots of coaches and on track is a very national company uh doing a great job representing gill equipment to high school and college coaches around the country how did that start how did you get on with ron morris at on track
2: well um you want the short version or the long version?
1: You know, our average length is an hour and 45 and we're only at the hour and 10 mark, my friend. We got plenty of time. You tell the story so, okay. how you so, want to well, tell the
2: story. I'm, I'm I'm I think I am a little unique in in my position as an outside sales guy. So mm-hmm. so it took um a pretty strange path to get me where I am at today. So it it starts it really starts um in 1987 um I have all in 85, I got married and I had two stepsons, So all of a sudden I have a family. Mm-hmm. Okay. And up until that point, um, not being paid a lot. Wasn't that big of an issue for me. Mm. Uh, looking back, maybe it should have been, but, but I was making $8,000 a year. And so I go into the athletic director and I say, Hey man, you know, is this going to change? Um, cause I, I can't, I can't survive. And he said, I don't see a change in it. Mm. So I go, well, I gotta do something different. And luckily, I knew Jan Johnson, and he knew the people at Ampro. So I called him up and said, hey, you should hire me. And um, they flew me down. So all of a sudden, I was the pole guy for Catapult and Portman.
3: Mm-hmm. It was
2: Ampro in Anaheim. Right. And uh, luckily, um, Jim Barrier had been one of the original uh, engineers with Herb Jinks, mm. invented the modern fiberglass,
3: fiberglass. Mm-hmm.
2: and and Jim was in the aerospace um, at the time, and but he, he was a composite engineer, mm. so Jim mm. taught me the engineering and the design uh, principles behind the vaulting pole, and very quickly saw what catapult was doing wrong, what we needed to, do to fix that, so we fixed the pole, and and I um I got to market it i was part of the r d um but it, mostly he taught me everything about um, composites mm-hmm. and fiberglass and and what makes a pole work the way it's supposed to work or not work and and i'm a, a good student i really understood what he was doing yeah. and um, we actually got dave Kenworthy on the pole and he won indoors <laughs> right here, so everything I was just going man this is like wow you know we had a an ad campaign going. I was really excited, and then all of a sudden, it just got cut off. And I found out that the owner was spending his money on an eight thousand dollar golf cart, and I didn't like California, so I I left. Yeah. Okay. I just told him I left. Um, actually, I told, him, <laughs> I told him, I told him, I told him I'm going to leave in the fall. Um, so I'll give you some. This was in 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 May, the end of May. Give you some time to bring somebody, and I can train him. He said, "No, you're fired." That day. Wow. So, we all of a sudden uh, we were just out in the cold in in LA, in, in Anaheim going oh oh I guess I should have kept my mouth shut realized <laughs> that so so we came up to Eugene um, found some other things to do but when I started coaching for Bill Dillinger he talked Dick Held
3: who mm-hmm. had invented
2: javelin mm-hmm. to hiring me for Oregon track equipment yeah um, knew nothing about javelins or discus started as just a grunt labor guy, but by three or four years, I was running. Dick did not want to have to do that. So I was actually, Ron Johnson and I were supposed to be running it, but Ron really didn't want to do anything. So I was running Oregon track equipment. I built all the discs and- And
1: and, and, and pause right there for a second, because we have to give some historical context to this just here a little bit. Um, Our average listener here is- uh 35 to 40 years old. So you just named, first of all, go back to Ampro. You, you named Herm Jinx, the godfather of fiberglass vaulting poles. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. 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 You, you you know, as a vaulter, as we, you know, I've heard now your story. And obviously, you know, it feels like if I were to, to cut your arm, you would bleed vaulting poles. I mean, that's <laughs> or, or maybe shards of fiberglass. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you have to be thinking. A little bit like a kid in a candy store when you're there working on vaulting poles. I mean, you came through, oh, you yeah. started with a steel in your back alley, you saw bamboo and you see the progression of fiberglass and you're in the muck of it, in the middle of it, learning it, fixing it, mark. I mean, that's... Yeah outside of being a full-time coach that seemed like that was maybe a dream job at that oh
2: absolutely yeah yeah very very exciting and And then that
1: that goes south a little bit but now you go to oregon track equipment ote oregon track equipment and you're working with dick held come on legend ron johnson come on legend. i mean bill dellinger the owner i mean that's yeah. you're in a really special time with really special people in regards to specifically the equipment side of track and field, which we all know yeah. how intensive equipment right. for track and field is. Well,
2: absolutely. You know, and the javelin is such a special implement, uh, aerodynamic, even though they changed the rules and not as much as it was, but right. the things that Dick invented and did. And, you know, once again, I was a good student yeah. and uh, I learned everything that Dick wanted to teach me um about not just the process but why we were doing it why the you know on the ote comp still has a world record
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know even though everybody wants to throw carbons but the what he did to make that javelin the best javelin that's ever been
3: yeah.
2: um new rule and the old rules he had the world record with the old rule javelin too so there were specific things that he did to make a javelin fly far and he was he was a genius yeah absolutely and yeah. uh so to work with him and to learn that was was really you know um it was it was a great opportunity uh some hard times because we were a little tiny company trying to make it um but but I you know the discus was real I really loved the discus building the discus um fixing some things uh you know and and our discus won the Olympics in 96 riedel through it um so that was a big deal for us you know and sure. and, and um you know, and of course, at the time, Puskus was the top javelin thrower, and he would send his javelins to us, and we would rework them every year to make them just barely legal, so they right. would fly. Bear- and those are the javelins that Celestine would borrow, step <laughs> all his records with, were, were Tom's javelins. So, so to be a part of that was really pretty amazing, but, but we weren't making it. We were we didn't have the backing, financial backing, right? and, and the hurdle... Great, you know, we had the automatic hurdle and mm-hmm. it was a craftsman. We were a little craftsman shop, right? Uh, but it it was almost costing as much as we were selling stuff for. So we were, so luckily this crazy company uh who, you know, and I don't know if you know this, but in 90, 1990, I worked for Gil. Really? Did you know? I didn't know I that worked. part, no. Uh, because, 91 actually, because um I coached Dave Hodge for a fall before okay. he left, uh, I had a connection. I called him up once again. I, there's a theme there. I said you need to hire you me. You need to hire me. Uh, but but so they tried it. But you know at the time there was no internet, right? Apparently. So uh, having somebody work offsite, it just didn't work. Yeah. I I I tried. They tried. We we just can make it work. There's just no way. You know. Yeah. Um. So I had I had that connection, and so luckily Gil bought OTE. Mm-hmm. And um, you know you brought all the 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 gill javelins out and all the discus stuff and and um, so from 98, 99, right in there till two thousand four I ran the plant right at here in Eugene and and actually um, you know I, I miss those days those may that may have been my funnest time in my professional career because I was still coaching. But I was also running the plant, building javelins and discs, um, and getting to do the the R and D stuff. You know, I was actually able to be part of the R and D behind the FX vaulting poles. Oh yeah, uh, and with the flex chart changes uh-huh. and uh, going down to the uh, Olympic training center with the javelins and discs, really trying to do those kinds of things interactive to improve the product. So that was that was incredible. So that is incredible. But things change. And you guys needed to consolidate, and I certainly understand that. And being a, after my experience with Ampro, trying to live in California, I, I know myself. And and um, while I had some great offers, and it was probably the hardest decision of my life to, it, I just no way I was going to make it in Illinois. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a, I'm a West Coast mountain right. fly fishing kind of guy, and I would have I would have failed, yeah. and I knew that, so I I stayed here so all of a sudden now i don't have (laughs) i gotta figure out what to do so i i've got on board with first to finish
1: oh is that right yeah um
2: as an outside guy Mm -hmm. and um it was not they were trying to figure it out it was not a great marriage and then they decided they didn't want any outside people at all so Mm -hmm. they got rid of all of us uh within six months so once again i was Mm -hmm. sitting here with with uh trying to figure out what the hell am i going to do and that first time when First to finish, um, hired me after you know Gil had left, you guys had left. Um, I contacted Ron and he he almost pulled the trigger, but he wasn't Ron Morris with On Track. He and I had worked with Ron clear back with the in my Ampro days is when I okay. Met I was Ron.
1: wondering if there was a connection. Yeah, I a...
2: met him and then you know OTE days we sold to Ron right. stuff. We, um, so, but he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to make that commitment um it just seemed too much for him to do because he's a pretty small shot uh, but after first to finish um decided that and i was i called him back up and he said you know what and i miss it the first time i'm not going to miss it this time so so he said we'll figure out a way to make it work and and so that was in 2007 wow okay so um and you know i it went really well and and uh you know obviously ron's one of the best guys on the planet um and he does have great stories, but um great integrity. So it was fun to be a part. Um and since I had manufactured and I still coach and I'm still jumping, he thought, you know, so uh, I never really wanted to be a salesman necessarily. Mm. That wasn't a goal of mine. But I uh, I look at it as I'm just helping my buddies out
3: mm-hmm.
2: get what they need, uh track equipment. So that was going along fine until until the the pandemic, and mm-hmm. COVID just was more than Ron could handle. Yeah. You know, and being that he's um, you know, in his 80s. Yeah. Much. So basically OTE shut down. And I, you know, so once again, what what the hell am I going to do? And luckily Steve Ringold, who is a great guy and uh energetic and smart, um got <laughs> on track back. And uh so yeah. I'm selling equipment again
1: you know first of all i would wonder in a in a different universe if steve didn't bring you back would you have said Steve's smart <laughs> he was obviously very smart <laughs> to, to keep, you're like he's very smart he kept me on he brought me on he's yeah, very, yeah, yeah. very intelligent man uh, <laughs> and you know steve we love you we, you know we you'd be intelligent no matter what we get it we yeah, get it yeah. uh what what's it like again i just think about this you know cut you open and fiberglass comes out and you're working with ron morris who you know i i was impressed the very first time i ever met ron because you mentioned 80 years old you know at his age and stage he was with it buddy i mean you oh, yeah. would if if you yeah. didn't know if you were only like on the phone or something with him you might not have known he was 80 years old i mean he right. was very involved in the business that he owned very involved in vaulting I mean he was really good. What was it like working for I mean a gold medal? I mean, vault has been your life since fifth grade. And here you are working for a gold medalist in the vault. Yeah.
2: Well, and he's so authentic. And and so you great, know, a lot of people,
1: great description of him, by the way. Yeah, yes, yeah, nailed it.
2: Yeah, a lot of people talk the talk, but he 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 did. He cares about track and field. Um, so it really it was about getting equipment to athletes and coaches to help him out, you know, and and of course um, he, he was um, also a tough nut because, you know, he some of the things that he did, you know, I mean, he had the high school record at one time, the national high school record on, on um, bamboo. He jumped hmm. 13 three or six, 13, between, somewhere in there. Um, and then to get on to steel in college um, you know, and and get to the Olympics, he jumped 15 eight. And most of the guys in the steel back in that era were big guys, big strong. Cause you had to be, and he wasn't. Hmm. Um, so he was a great technician. So he learned how to vault really well. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's got great stories about bad pits, talk about bad pits, landing, not just in sawdust but in sand,
3: hmm. sometimes
2: jumping 14 feet landing, in a in a basically a long jump pit. <laughs> I mean, just uh, incredible. Um, but then everybody quit when fiberglass came because, and except, so there was a, a new batch of young guys that had started on steel, but all the all the guys that had been jumping still quit. And he didn't, hmm. he kept jumping. So 15-8 was right at the world record. He had shots at the world record. And then he jumped 16-6 and a little bit on, on glass. So, and and probably the most amazing thing about him, I'm just telling these stories because it says who he is. He never know how he did. <laughs> in his whole career i'm i don't know anybody
1: wow I anybody. no everybody
2: yeah he never know how to and um so you know that just kind of that's who ron morris was and um you know um he coached for a while um but he wasn't that wasn't his passion um you know and i think finding the equipment side of it to help people was really the side that really worked for him to help everything out yeah um but you know, genuine, genuine guy. He, he loved to tell stories. He loved to hear my stories. So we got, along great. <laughs> we
3: got
1: along great. I can imagine. I can imagine. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, we're so happy. You know, Ron did an amazing job building on track and field. And you know, a, a company like that, you, you know, you start having legacy. You start having roots into the sport of track and field. On track is is very important for track and field and so as ron you know during covid and you know trying to sell the the business um you know, there was a little bit of touch and go of like, is this the end of on track? And it was like, oh man, that's not right. It's not right for Ron's legacy, to be honest with you. And so right. it was very happy when Steve Ringold, you know, came along, purchased it. And uh, and again, you know, obviously it was very intelligent by keeping you uh, going on there as well. So um, what's it been like? You know, I, I don't, not a lot of people know what we do, you know, what, what you do right. serving coaches right. with uh, yeah. track and field equipment, you know, and it, it, let me say it here loud and clear everything you see in our catalog, Dan West and On Track sells. It's not a, they only sell this or that or whatnot. They are full line. They're one of our great, great partners out there. Um, what's it like? You, you didn't grow up wanting to be a salesman. You weren't a salesman. You were a, a plant manager. You were a, a javelin builder. You were a pole vault pole builder. What's it like transitioning to sales? And I think, and you're probably going to say it again, when you talked about helping my buddies get equipment, at the end of the day, what our job is, is to serve others. What's that been like switching that role into being a servant for other coaches to help them not grow up the way you grew up with one pole and no pit and things like that?
2: Well, yeah, you say that's exactly it, you know, and and it's um, there's a balance there. There's some challenges, right, because we all have budgets. And, and so, um, you know, some equipment uh, doesn't really matter um some equipment it matters a lot the quality the level and um and the higher the quality the more you're going to pay for it so there's always that balance of um what's the best thing for that part of your program you know um high school kids don't need to throw the best javelin that was ever built they don't need to pay a thousand dollars to throw the javelin. but you want a javelin that's going to last you want a javelin that that's legal so um if you just bring in, there's I won't say any names, but you bring in certain javelins, uh, they may not be legal, and so you know even if you pay two hundred bucks, three hundred bucks for a javelin, you expect it to be legal, Absolutely. right? So you, you, there's that balance. There's um, there's a lot of challenges being in an on track because um, you know uh, with the internet and with larger entities Mm -hmm. out there that can beat you on price Mm -hmm. and and coaches want the best price obviously because they they have a very limited budget so you're trying to find that balance Mm -hmm. you know all the time um Mm -hmm. of making sure you match the quality and the workmanship of the product to what that coach needs you know Mm -hmm. and and sometimes it it works out great sometimes it's real frustrating because you get beat just because of price Sometimes you've got a great customer and then all of a sudden that coach moves on and you lose and you got to convince somebody and they, they don't believe you and they buy some uh, lesser quality equipment. And they're like, man, why did I do that? You see them in a show and they go, oh, man, I really messed that up. I shouldn't have bought that. It's not working out for me. Uh, but by the time they're ready to buy that again, they're gone. So you mm-hmm. go through it. So there there's all those challenges, but you know, luck, luckily for me, once again, um, I, I've I've hooked up with the guy Steve that that you know and everybody says it, but you 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 actually walk the walk and not just talk it. And quality, taking care of people mm-hmm. is it's really important, you know. And and um, there's a lot of BS out there. Um, You can say a lot of things to people, you know, but but the I think you know when the rubber meets the road, if if you take care of your customer, if you give them actual, you know good information you know a, a, a lot of coaches call up and, and they go i got this kid he's jumping 13 feet but we got to get him on 15 foot poles well you know that's not the right thing it's not the right thing for the kid and and so can you help the guy understand that convince him help teach him so that's a fun thing to do right mm-hmm. um, and, and like the javelin instance and some somebody wants a 90 percent rim weight disc because they they read that Somebody threw that real far, right. you know, and their kids throwing 100 feet. Well, that's not going to work for your kid. And you explain why. Mm-hmm. I've got the background to not just BS them, but to tell them exactly why and get the right discus that right. not only can they afford, but the kid will have more success with. So, so if you can find those kinds of things, you know, be innovative, um, you know, work with people that care, that really do care, and try to do it the right way. And luckily, I've landed there once again. You know, On Track could have gone in a lot of different directions. And um, I've been around long enough that I I wouldn't put up with being with a company uh, that that didn't do that, you know? So it's still a challenge because um, pricing is so important, you know, Mm -hmm. and and the the internet makes it harder, but there's still a place out there for people, you know, and if you're a distance coach and you're great, the best distance coach in the world, uh, but you've never coached the ball, how are you going to know what, what pole do I really need? I got my kid; he's doing this. I. Uh, what do I go to? Right. What's the next pole? You know, and it's it's not just automatic, because maybe the kid's five feet six inches tall, maybe he's six four, and that's going to influence what pole he right. really should go to. You know, so as an example, so you know, you're just trying to help those things out, and then you you got to follow up because things don't go right in this world,
3: right? Yeah.
2: So things get broken in shipping.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Things get shipped wrong from you guys from us those problems happen and you know and so if you're upfront, well that's my mistake that's on me we'll fix it
3: Mm -hmm.
2: you fix it then you can build that reputation you take care of some coaches and pretty soon you you build that salesman uh referral list that that you need and uh, so people come back to to say hey you know dan's my man he's going to take care of me um i don't care what it costs uh and then you get all the new guys, you got to convince them of that. So it's, it, it's, it's a good challenge. It's a fun challenge, but like you said, I mean, you, you said it exactly the way for me, it really is helping, helping the sport, helping kids, you know, um, just like I said, I've got a girl coming in um, from a, a, a good, good high school, but they don't care about the vault. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she had one pole to vault her. one pole. I mean, what can you, you can't be a vaulter. Which is one pull. It's either too big or too small, eventually.
1: You, you can't be a good vaulter. Yeah. You're still a vaulter. Absolutely. Totally, yeah.
2: So, you know, for me, um, if I had known that, I would like to, you know, I'd like to try to help that coach. Um yeah. saying, oh, you need you need you need to build if you want to have vaulters, you need to build that up a little bit. Here's what you gotta do. Here's a series to help you. So, so that's kind of what it's been like. does that, does that answer your question?
1: A- absolutely. Yeah. And you know what what really struck me there, Dan, you know, I'm speaking to the coaches who are listening right now. You know, I we have a dealer network built out. So I talked to the salespeople all across this country. Uh, what Dan just said there is really important. If you're looking for who to purchase track and field equipment from, find you a sales professional. That's different than a salesman, by the way, the salesman conjures up the used car salesman, the snake oil salesman, a sales professional serves their customers, find you a sales professional that will try to talk you out of buying something that's that's key to me. When I hear a sales professional like Dan say that my ears perk up and it's like, oh, yeah, this is a a person you can trust. Cause the person who doesn't have your best interest at heart says, Oh, you want that 90% rim weight discus for your hundred foot thrower? Sure. You want your money. Have you ever heard that? It's your money. Yeah. What is your money? And we know how limited and how important that money is to you, whether you're a mom buying that for your kids or your own personal money, or you're a coach taking it out of your budget that they don't give you enough of find you a sales professional that will try to talk you out of something like, Hey, I'd rather you take that list. I'm just going to make up numbers. Instead of you know paying 700, 800, whatever that discus might be, I'd rather you buy five $100 discuses that are in this room weight. And now you're getting more reps for that kid. And that person's going to go from 100, to 110, 120, 130. And you know what? When they get to 180, 190, maybe, maybe, right. maybe right. they need to throw that. But guess what? not everybody needs to throw that either, by the way. Find that person and that's the person that's gonna sell you your big ticket items, your pole vault pits, your your hurdles, your cages, uh, with an honest and fair deal. They're gonna, they got your best interest at heart. They're not trying to get every single dollar out of your budget. They're there to help you make your budget work for you. Anytime you hear a sales professional say that, your ears should perk up and be like, oh, I should at least Talk to this person, like this person is some trustworthy person. The salesman, the saleswoman that just says, Hey, it's your money. You want that? Sure. I'll sell it to you. Uh, they got their their best interest at heart at that point. And so, Dan, I just appreciate uh oh, the way yeah. you uh conduct business. Uh, it makes it when, you know, when you know my, my whole world is in the ecosystem of coaches. So I have coaches all the time. Well, who should I buy from? Where should I get this, etc.? It's always Uh, comforting. It's a, it's a Rolodex of people like yourself that are like, Oh, Hey, you want to know, first of all, Dan, you have such an amazing background in the manufacturing side of it. You have a whole different uh, education and experience level that, you know, 99.9% of all salespeople in our world in the track and field equipment world aren't ever going to be able to touch. So I just love, you know, being able to give a coach to you to work with because it's like, oh, you've got, you know, heck and like, you know, you and I've talked javelins before. It's like, oh yeah, you are light years ahead of me, my friend. And I know decent amount because it happens right across that door, but uh, you've had your hands in the mud doing it. That's, you know, you can't pay for that education. But then to know that even against your best interest, selling that $900 discus versus the selling, you know, a hundred dollar discus that you will do that for your coaches, for your clients, for your customers. That is what builds. And that's why you built the reputation that you have built today. Those people who have worked with you, I've talked to a lot of those coaches before and they're like, oh yeah, yeah. Dan's, Dan's the man. That's the guy. That's who I go to. That's my guy. I don't have to worry about a lot of things because I have Dan on my team, on my staff, almost, if you will. Dan's my equipment manager, if you will. Uh, That is just what makes life a lot easier, not only for myself, ourselves here as a manufacturer, uh, having you represent Gill Athletics equipment out there, but also as coaches out there. It's just uh, you've got so much going on, Coach recruiting coaching paperwork nil transfer portal etc it's your own lives <laughs> you have your own yeah, families yeah. and passions and right. charities right. here's a way to have some comfort in your decisions you, like i said it's almost like he's on your staff here so dan i'm just so thankful for that posture that you have in your salesmanship and you're yeah. a, a true sales professional out there thank
2: you thank you appreciate that man
1: cool Dan, man, uh, we went around the world. We, uh, we, we we learned something. How important is it to, to go to someone and be like, hey man, you need to hire me. Like, I, I love that. There's some gumption there, if you will. Uh, and I love that because if you don't, well, you know, sometimes people don't know they should be hiring you. So I love that, uh, that never fight attitude. I love, love, love that. Thank goodness it the snow melted and it rained and that river flooded. Because it seemed very uh, picturesque before that. And you're saying you're looking down, you see salmon swimming. Come on, who doesn't want that? Thank goodness you had to move. And there was this crazy two by four with a steel pole sitting in your alley, man. Because uh, I, I think for a Sometimes guy. Sometimes my I, wife
2: isn't sure that that's. Yeah, I joke. bet.
1: I bet. I bet. <laughs> But but I do wonder sometimes, you know, obviously that was kind of a catalyst to build this amazing career and life that you've had up to this point. What's awesome is that life and career is continuing on, my friend. Today's not the end by any means. You have many, many years ahead of you serving coaches around the country. Uh, But I think a guy like you, I think you were put on this earth for the vault in some form or fashion, whether it's coaching, manufacturing, selling, etc. I think even if you would have stayed in that Crazy, you know, forest, river uh, area. Uh, and maybe even if that high school didn't have vaulting, I think you still, I think vaulting still would have found you, whether you would have seen it on TV one day as a 24 year old, like, oh man, that's kind of a cool event. I should just try that. Uh, I think, I think it was no stopping you and the vault coming together. Uh, and it's made for a great life with some great adventures and some great people. That you've had in your network in your circle and you have become one of those great people for other people man so i'm just so grateful and so thankful for what you have done what you continue to do now and what you will do here in the next few years as well as you continue on in your career
2: well thank you man i appreciate that means a lot to me
1: Absolutely. And thank you for being here, man. I told you this would be a fun one. We'd have a kind of a mashup of a whole bunch of things. Uh, And I'm willing to bet there's at least 20 more stories still hidden back there that I I wasn't able to pull out. We might have to uh, revisit this one day and do it all over again. But uh, so grateful that you would join us here on the Guild Connections podcast as we uplift and honor coaches from around the country, including coaches like this that have uh, just a unique background, man. I love it, especially as a manufacturer at heart. I just absolutely love it. So thanks for being here. Check us out next week. We'll do it all over again.